0: So, this is as good and as deep as it gets right now, three days into the retreat. Uh, I know this because I was sitting out in the uh, lobby there in one of those big, cushy brown chairs uh, and um and at the break, it was like a super highway going back and forth, you know like. All these people rushing to the bathroom. John was driving around in his cart. I thought, what is going on? But it's just our own perceptions, you know, everything slows down. And then when there's even a slightly elevated level of activity, we really take note of that. It looks like craziness, you know? but not so much. So I really only have one thing to say to you, but I'm going to make you wait until the very end. (laughs) We'll take a couple of detours through. Um, My ear's not big enough for this. A couple of detours. Um, The first one uh, occurred about ten years ago. I was uh, working at the public library and I uh, managed technology there. and My offices were way up in the back corner of the library and I tried to keep the the technology people away from the general public because we're not actually that good with people. (laughs) 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 In order to get to my office, I had to walk past this long table, longer than the width of this room, which was full of books that had been donated by people and were waiting to be sorted we always paid attention to these books because sometimes there were some real treasures there that we could actually buy by the pound. So that was a good thing. One day I'd come back from lunch with uh, my my boss and um, we were walking by this table and there were some new boxes and I glanced into one and I saw a book that was really familiar to me that I had had when I was in college. and, And I looked into this box again and every single book in this box was a book that I had on a bookshelf in my home. (laughs) (laughs) Now these were not like, you know, best-selling novels or anything, (laughs) okay? So there were uh, all of, every volume of Walter Kaufman's translations of Nietzsche were in there. T.S. Eliot, Ezra Pound, William Carlos Williams, even Charles Olson and Robert Duncan, who I thought no one read except me, of course, because these books were so unique and rare, and somehow, you know, me. They were just like me. So this was kind of amazing, because when we get books like this, these books come to us because someone has died. They're part of an estate, somebody's cleaning house. And that dead man had my books. So who was this man? I really wanted to know. Who was this man who had my books? Maybe he was a writer or a teacher. Maybe I knew him. He certainly seemed to know me. At home, A few weeks ago, I'm retired, I decided that uh, I needed to shed a, a few truckloads of things at my home. And walking through the house and through my garage uh, to discover the residue of dozens of lies and identities that were resting in various places in my home, including all of those books somehow enshrined on my bookshelf, many of which I hadn't probably touched for 15 years. Somehow, those books and many other things were sort of a skin that I might wear for an appropriate occasion. Uh, Really, some part of me felt that they were inseparable. A really, truly part of myself, a self. Many selves, actually. (coughs) I could drag them out at various times for the appropriate occasion. Shakespeare, Santa Cruz. Here's Bill right here. I'll read whatever's coming up in the summer theater. Talk about things with their roots left on. William Carlos Williams is my guy. Three file drawers full of music that I have performed over the last 30 years. Technical books and boxes of cables and cable adapters, male and female and neutral. Who could think that (laughs) cables could be so juicy? (laughs) Tools that I used to rebuild a house 40 years ago. All of these things, how I made a world, uh, many worlds, If I collected them all and send them all off, what would be left of me? Mm. Each and every thing seemed to ask that question, how can you send me off? I am you. I am part of you, an inseparable part of you. A few weeks ago, um, a very close an old friend of mine, a friend of forty-five years, passed away. In the house where she lived were countless signs of activity. She was an artist, um, a very doting grandmother, and every corner of this home had some project. Paint, ceramics, fabrics things needed for jewelry making, all of these things she was very competent at. And the signs of her living and her life were everywhere. It was a long time uh, for her to shed her life, a very long time, a lot of pain. And I count myself lucky to have been with her at the at the end for the very last few days. Uh, for most of that time, and after she passed, uh, I was uh, in the room where she died, and her family had had gone home. Uh, the advice was that really it wouldn't be good for them to be here when they came to take the body, and. So I waited for that. It was about a half an hour. (laughs) All of the stuff of my friend's life obviously mattered, not at all now. And I held her hand. Still warm. But in the half hour I was there, I could feel the cooling. nothing left. So in the days that followed, um, of course, an untold amount of grieving by her family, also a gradual settling, of knowing really how perfectly ordinary this was, how this beautiful person was with us and then, despite all of the things that occupied the house, really left nothing behind, nothing. All of this effort we make to build a world and to build a self Bob reminded me of a a quote that I think uh, is a Sufi teaching um, about how perhaps it's wiser to die before we die. So faced with all of this stuff, all of these identities, some reflected in things, The books, the tools, the boxes, of things that once were useful, once made up some part of who I am. I have suits in my closet that I will never ever wear. (laughs) (laughs) But when we let go of that stuff, what is left for us? What is left for all of that effort? What is the real world that's left to us? In one of those books on my shelf, which I may not let go of, I'm not sure, um, is a poem by Fernando Pessoa that begins, uh, The universe is not an idea of mine. My idea of the universe is mine. And of course, the Buddha had a few things to say about this. In the Moggallana Sutta, it says very clearly, the awakened one has learned that nothing is worth clinging to. Nothing. During the uh, interviews, I was reminded of uh, my own first retreat experience. I was at Yucca Valley. It was the first, not even just my first retreat experience, it was the first time I even approached the practice. I decided jumping in with both feet is the way I do things, so I would go on a 10-day retreat. (laughs) So I went to Yucca Valley, um, to my mind still one of the most inhospitable, nasty places on the face of the earth. (laughs) I know some people love the desert, and that's fine. But um, about the third day that I was there, the wind continually was blowing 30 or 40 miles an hour. I was, the, the main doors of the meditation hall were directly behind me. And they kept blowing open and blasting me with cold air. There were far too many people there. They were all too noisy. It was too cold. My body was in excruciating pain after about the third day. And there was that highway right out there with lots of traffic. <laughs> and I thought that when you went on a retreat it was supposed to be like nice and quiet. Well, that's my idea. I don't know. So I think the next day there were Uh, interviews, (coughs) my first interview. The night before that, I found myself in the parking lot outside the dining hall, just bawling. I just completely fell apart. So I went to my interview, and uh, I explained all of this to the teacher and all of the difficulties that I was having and how broken I felt. And I I thought I was pretty clear about it. (laughs) And she looked at me and she said, stay with your breath. Stay with your breath. So when I uh, am sitting in that other seat now, I try to make sure I say some other things first. (laughs) 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 It's amazing to me how this practice works. Now looking back at my own practice, so many times it seems completely new to me that I'm just discovering it over and over again. And there are so many teachers, and some of them don't even wear the teacher hat or sit on the teacher cushion. One of my favorite teachers recently is Holly Hunter. So she was in a uh, film that Jane Campion did called Top of the Lake, maybe some of you have seen it. She plays a kind of minor role as a kind of side plot where she is a sort of guru to a group of women who um, have uh, had a lot of difficulties in their lives and divorces and children gone wrong and drugs and alcohol and so forth at this very remote place in New Zealand, the top of the lake. And they've created a kind of um, commune there where they all live in uh, trailers, but I mean, not trailer like semi-trailers, the kind of containers Know, for container ships. So they built this little place. And there are a few scenes where we kind of s- get a picture of that life, but um, towards the end, uh, the main character in the, in the film, who is a, a, a police woman on an extremely uh, very difficult, really heart-wrenching case, um, finds herself at this encampment, uh, injured physically, really at the end of her rope. So she decides that she's going to seek help from this woman whose name is Gigi. And um, She comes to her and she says, uh, Gigi, I really need your help. So Gigi looks at her and she says, Stop thinking. Stop helping. Be like the oxygen on an airplane, help yourself first. Here, are you in pain? Lay down here and heal yourself like a cat. So at first I didn't know why that stuck with me so much, but it's all true. It's all really much a piece of the heart of our practice, right? It's all an inside job. We have to heal ourselves like a cat. (laughs) We have to disengage from the thinking and the fixing that's really just in our way. It's in our way. We have to get to something that precedes that thinking and and that desire to help and that fixing, and that wanting to be fixed and that wanting someone else to come and fix us. Just an inside job. Just stay with the breath. Stay with the breath. behind all of that thinking and fixing and helping. The Buddha tells us what is there. The Buddha is at Savati and he says this to his followers because I will teach you the all listen to the all. And what bhikkhus is the all? The eye and the eye forms, the ear and sounds, the nose and odors, the tongue and tastes, the body and tactile objects, the mind and mental phenomena, this is called the all so i think i mentioned to you in the very first talk on the first morning that you had all accepted the invitation to be here, and that I gave you the directions to get here, and the directions were, go inward, go inward. As Jason said, we're not breath worshippers, but the breath is the way we can take ourselves inward. To the all, behind the thinking, behind the fixing and the helping. The same poet I mentioned earlier, Fernando Pasella, says this, you know, we think that the senses are like, there's got to be more than this. The mind is so wonderful. Know, it's kind of existing mm-hmm. above the level of senses where we create so much, you know, independent of sensory input, but it's <coughs> not true. The soul says, I'm a keeper of sheep. The sheep are my thoughts. And each thought a sensation. I think with my eyes and my ears, and with my hands and feet. And with my nose and mouth, to think a flower is to see it and smell it. And to eat its fruit is to know its meaning. All of this thinking come in from the all, from the all. So now this is the only thing I want to say to you. I've said it to some of you in group and individually. A few months ago, I was on retreat here with Gil, and um, I had John's job, I had your job sweeping this walk out here. Have a notebook that I, I bring with me on retreat. I never write in it though, or look at it. <laughs> and uh, there was a, a something I'd written there from um, a Thai uh, a woman who was a really revered um, lay teacher in Thailand. She's passed now. Um, because. Uh, Tanisara um has collected a lot of her uh, Dharma talks and poetry actually and translated them. And uh, amongst the poems is uh, this fragment. This is her description of awareness. Um, awareness is a word that I really don't like to use at all because I don't know what it means. Uh, I really don't. It's like no, awareness is so easy to conceive of. We almost always end up con- conceiving of this as a thing. I have awareness. Where? No, what is that? I don't know what that is. I, I think it's a really sort of a poor term to use. The Buddha didn't use that word. No. The Buddha used the word knowing. Knowing. So Ki-Nanayon, the name of this uh, Buddhist teacher, writes this. An inward staying, unentangled knowing, all outward going knowing, set aside. An inward staying, unentangled knowing, all outward going knowing, set aside. So I was sweeping the walk, and for whatever reason this popped into my mind. So I was sweeping the walk, and all of a sudden that sweeping the walk was just about the motion of the broom, the sound of the bristles against the concrete, the feeling of the air moving past my hands, It was all about the all. Nothing else. No mind wandering. No looking around. Just in the all. Completely. So I thought, I'm gonna pay attention to this. This seems like a really rich teaching. Every word really is so full to me when I consider this inward staying, inward staying. Someone asked me uh, in an interview about uh, how they were pretty good at returning to the breath, but they didn't feel like it stay there for a long time. So we have this notion uh, of sort of two parts of the breath, this bringing the attention to the breath and sustaining it there. We talk vichara, Nepali. But this notion of, of simply giving ourselves this direction, inward staying, made it so simple to me to come back to the breath. Wherever I was, inward staying, inward staying, to just continue to be there. And not just on the cushion with the breath, but really wherever I was, pushing that broom, washing dishes in my home, cooking breakfast with Bob in the morning. Some very potent reminder that the real experience that was going on was inside. It was inside, no matter what it was. No matter what, it was washing dishes or sitting in the cushion really no difference at all. And inward staying, unentangled knowing, unentangled. So this tangling is a word that frequently um, gets hauled out when we're talking about the hindrances, when we're talking about those things which get in our way during meditation, but also during everything in life. Uh, the entanglements of our continually wanting pleasure, Uh, sense desire, the entanglements that are uh, around our aversion, all of the things we don't want, don't like, (coughs) keep us from being perfect meditators or whatever it is that we're attempting, Uh, the entanglements of sleepiness, which so often is just um, our... Wanting to get away from practice, really. Unentangled knowing. Being with the all. Just imagine being just completely aware, having that awareness of just the all. Completely unentangled. All outward going, knowing, set aside. You know now, after three days, that when the mind goes out, it can go anywhere. It can go somewhere and we won't even know that it's gone for long stretches of time. That outward going, going out to find the solutions to our problems, going out to get fixed, going out to find pleasure, going out to push something away that we don't want to be in the presence of. Letting that go, all outward (coughs) going, knowing, set aside. Later uh, in this poem, Kinanayon writes, this is uh, how to look inward till you see clear through, till you see clear through. So the longer I practice, the more these very simple instructions feel true to me. Stay with the breath. Inner staying. And whatever arises more and more the answer seems to be, to be quiet. To simply be present for whatever arises. A teacher who I uh, admire a lot, Rodney Strong, um, writes this, says, we will never know what the next step will look like, except that it will be quieter. We'll be quieter than the previous one. The way forward is to be quiet and still with whatever expression of reality thought brings forth. And through that quietude, each reflection becomes both the means and the end for dissolving the delusion in front of us. Finding the way to this most basic, unentangled experience of the all is not about somehow magically being, sorry, being pulled out of life into some safer, more exotic, more wonderful place. Pico Ayer has a really wonderful way of describing this that I hope you perhaps have had a taste of or will have a taste of in these last days of the retreat. He says, sit still. Notice all around you. Fall in love with life again. and then devote yourself to it, completely. Fall in love with that life which is not entangled. Fall in love with that life when we've shaken loose of all that we think is our life and is us and is the self. Wrap tightly about us, keeping from really being in life. <coughs> Stay with the breath. Move inward. Shed all the defenses, all the protection. The eye and forms, the ear and sound, the tongue and taste, the nose and odors, the body and touch, the mind and thought, that's enough, that is enough, that is all. So I offer that for your reflection and let's just sit together for a moment hmm <laughs> So please enjoy your walking practice.